Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. Now that we have over 50 episodes of this podcast under our belt, it's my great hope that you realize that we're highly intentional about every guest we bring you. The common denominator, of course, is that each person's work in some meaningful way adds new dimension to the Lead from the Heart philosophy. But there's always the question of what information would be most valuable to you, our audience, at the very moment that we're producing a new episode. And in the past few weeks, I've been thinking a lot about the work from home experience many of us continue to be having, not to mention the challenges of sustaining high engagement and productivity when many, if not all of the people we're managing are working remotely too. And that has influenced me to be thinking about employee coaching, how critically important it is and how challenging it is to perform in the virtual work world we're all navigating. And so I'm particularly thrilled to have one of the world's truly great experts on coaching join us today to share how he's learned to successfully mentor and support executives when sitting together in the same room is no longer an option. And this conversation, I think, just couldn't be more timely. For the few listeners who aren't already familiar with Marshall Goldsmith, he is the author or editor of 42 books, including Triggers, What Got You Here Won't Get You There, and How Women Rise. His books have sold over two and a half million copies and have been translated into 32 languages. Over his career, he's coached CEOs from over 200 companies around the world. And two years ago, he was inducted into the Thinkers 50 Hall of Fame. The same year, the Marshall Goldsmith Distinguished Achievement Award for Coaching and Mentoring was created. He has been ranked as the world's number one executive coach and top 10 business thinker for eight years and was the inaugural winner of the Lifetime Award for Leadership by the Harvard Institute of Coaching. A few years ago, I was honored to have Marshall invite me out to his former home in Rancho Santa Fe, California for a long walk in his neighborhood. And so it feels like a friend is joining me for a conversation more than anything else. And as I've learned firsthand, Marshall has tremendous leadership wisdom to share, and it's time for you to hear some of it too. So Marshall Goldsmith, it is a profound privilege to be speaking with you today. Welcome, sir, to the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. Very happy to be here. Marshall, I'm honored you know that. And I want to start talking a little bit about just the world we're living in right now. What we're experiencing is just so extraordinary. So I thought I'd start off by asking, how are you doing personally? Oh, I'm doing great. Actually, I think for me, this has kind of been a blessing in disguise. I have 11 million frequent flyer miles on American Airlines. So I'm used to living on the road. And it's actually been very good for me to get off the road, think, write, and just figure out what I want to do with the rest of my life. <laughs> I mean, that's interesting. Have you ever done that before? Have you ever taken yourself off the road just for that purpose? No. Never? No. No, I've, no I've, I was on the road for 43 years. And so it seems to me, just hearing your voice, to be honest with you, it just sounds like you're making the transition so easily when I think a lot of people are really struggling with this. Well, I feel very fortunate. This happened at a time in my life, I'm 71, where, you know, I've already done pretty much anything any of my field could have ever done before. So it's a good time for me to sit back, think and relax and reflect. If this had happened when I was 31, it would have been a disaster. So you just hit on something that I really want to probe. So 
Yeah. I mean, you're an extraordinarily accomplished person. And so if you're on hiatus, it's not a really painful thing for you. And you have the wisdom to know how to make the best use of this time. What would you say to your 31-year-old self if you were going through this right now? Like, how would you keep it from being a disaster knowing what you know now? It is a disaster. So the first thing is just accept the fact people have said to me things like, oh, we've been through this before and we've been through other hard times wrong. I'm 71. I've never been through anything like this before. Mm -hmm. This is very historically unique. And I would tell people, depends on the field. I mean, many people are doing fine. So if you're in technology, you work for Amazon or, you know, you work for Microsoft, you're probably doing fine. For many people, it's very, very hard out there. So I would tell them, you just have to work and pretty much look at starting over because it can be incredibly difficult. One of my projects is called 100 Coaches. So I went to a program called Design the Life You Love. The woman who put on the program said, who are your heroes? My heroes were kind and generous people who are nice teachers. She said, you should be like them. So I thought, great idea. I made a little selfie video, very primitive, put it on LinkedIn. It said, my name is Marshall. I got ranked number one coach and leadership thinker and wrote best-selling books. And I'm getting old and I want to adopt 15 people, teach them all I know for free. And when they get old, when you get old, you have to do the same thing. If you're interested, let me know. I thought 100 people would apply. Turned out 18,000 people applied for adoption. And now I've adopted about 280, I think. And a lot of these people, though, are speakers and people like me who do consulting. And it's really hard for some of these people today. And I tell them, you just got to really be able to work. You've got to adapt. And you've just got to hustle because it's incredibly difficult. It's not difficult for me. If I were 31 years old, though, it would be tough. What is it that those people are experiencing, the ones that are having the hard time? Can you pinpoint what the emotion is? Is it loss? Is it grief? Is it? Oh, yeah. I mean, one of them just wrote a best-selling book and had a million dollars worth of speeches already lined up for the year, which all disappeared. Mm -hmm. So that's hard. Yeah, no, it's very hard. And you don't have to be in that industry, right? I mean, you could lose your job. You could be furloughed. You could be in an industry that's opening and closing. Let me give you another one. One of my adoptees, I'm very proud of him. His book is in a New York Times bestseller list today, David Chang. David Chang's a famous restaurant guy. He uh, owns Momofuku. David is a good friend of mine. Three of his restaurants have gone under. (sighs) And, you know, David is a brilliant guy. He's one of the top restaurant guys in the world. It's just tough out there. It's hard for him to lay people off that he knows and loves. And it's very, very hard. And one of the people in our group is named Harry Kramer. Harry was CEO Baxter. And somebody asked Harry, Harry, how have you made peace with yourself when you have to fire people, lay people off, do really hard things? And he said, I just asked myself two questions. Did I do my best? And did I do what I thought was right? He said, if I did what I thought was right, And I did my best. That's all in life I can ever do. And so I think it's very important is teaching people today to let go of what you cannot change and really focus on what you can change and make peace with what you can change. So David is a great case study. He's written a huge best-selling book now Mm -hmm. and is a good guy. By the way, he talks about me in his book, which is funny. Talks about me giving him coaching. Oh, that's fantastic. What an honor. Good for you. 
In fact, you know, if we ended this conversation right now, I think the wisdom that you just shared would be worth the price of admission for anybody listening in, because I think, you know, we feel oppressed. Some people feel oppressed by what's happening here. And your strategy is much more enlightened in terms of shaking our hands at the gods and the clouds and the sky and saying, you know, you've kind of taken away all this from me. The people that are really going to end up thriving here are the ones who make the best of this, right? I, I got a term for one of my friends, Bill Carrier, called pragmatic optimism. This is not a time for a Pollyanna motivational speech, rah, rah, everything is good. Everything's not good for a lot of people. You need to be very realistic and pragmatic. And you have to face the hard reality that's there. Yet at the same time, once you do that, you have to say, okay, here we are. How do I make the best of this situation? I mean, there's the world's most famous poem is called the Bhagavad Gita. In the Bhagavad Gita, what do you see? You see basically the protagonist who's a general and the charioteer played by Krishna. And what do you learn in, in the Bhagavad Gita? You learn first, you accept what is, you don't hide from it. Then you accept what is, you face the reality that's there. You come up with a strategy. You figure out what do I think is the right thing to do. You do your best. You don't get fixated on the end result. You cannot change. Mm -hmm. You make peace. And it's very hard today for people to block out distraction. It's so easy to look at the newspaper or the news, how many people died and the the TV show and just get fixated on this stuff. It's really important to block it out to block it out and say, all right, what can I do now? Marshall, you're someone who believes strongly in using habits and rituals in order to remain focused. So transitioning from what we're talking about or staying on the same topic, this is what's kept you highly productive. And you are one of the most extraordinarily productive people that I know. And so what are some of the most important personal regimens that you have and how have you been able to maintain them these past several months? In fact, I'm guessing you're going to tell me you've doubled down on them. Uh, Well, (laughs) one of the processes that I've been using for almost 30 years is called daily questions. And I'm now going to describe something to your listeners that takes three minutes a day, costs nothing, will help them get better at almost anything. Now, some people are skeptical now. They're thinking, wait a minute, three minutes a day, costs nothing, help me get better at almost anything. That sounds too good to be true. (laughs) Half the people that start doing this quit within two weeks. Mm. And they don't quit because it does not work. They quit because it does work. So what I do is incredibly easy to understand, and it's hard to do. Now, here's the way it works, and I do this every day. You get out a spreadsheet. You write down a series of questions that represent what's most important in your life. could be friends, family, health, work, writing, whatever it is. Every question has to be answered with yes, a no, or a number. Seven boxes across, one for every day of the week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. You fill it out every day, and at the end of the week, the spreadsheet will give you a report card. I've been doing this for 30 years. I will warn your listeners that the report card at the end of the week may not be quite as beautiful as that corporate values plaque stuck up on a wall. Yeah, I've been doing this for a long time, and you do this every day. You know what you quickly learn. You learn that life, life is incredibly easy to talk. And life is incredibly difficult to live. So when you do this every day, you get to look at those live values. They're not nearly as pretty as the talk values. This is real hard to do. And I work with 50 of the most important leaders in the world every weekend. We go through these questions every weekend. 
These people include the head of the Rockefeller Foundation, former head of the World Bank, guy who turned around Ford, you know, just amazing people. Uh, Dave Chang, I mentioned, is one of our group. We have authors. We have authors. We have uh, uh, Curtis Martin, who's in the National Football League Hall of Fame, mm-hmm. Al Gasol from the Lakers, you know, just amazing, amazing people. And every week we go through this process where they talk about their lives. And why? Because it has accountability without judgment. That's what people like about it. Every week they have to be accountable. They have to stand up and say in front of these highly distinguished people, here's how I did last week. Yet nobody's judging them or putting them down. So you said something interesting at the beginning. and I think I know the answer, but I want you to share it. Why would you quit something because it's working? It's painful. That's it. Mm-hmm. It takes a lot of courage to look in the mirror every day. It takes humility. You know what I learned as an executive coach? I really cannot help perfect people. If someone is perfect, there's very little I'm going to do to help them. So it takes humility. It takes courage. and It takes a lot of discipline to do this stuff. And as I said, it's, you think it's easy. Just prove you've never done it. I have someone call me on the phone every day. My friend Mark Thompson now, but I've had other people in the past. He calls me every day just to listen to me, read questions I wrote and provide answers I wrote every day. Now, why do I have someone call me every day? You know why? My name is Marshall Goldsmith. I got ranked number one leadership thinker and coach in the whole world. So I have someone call me on the phone every day. Just make sure I listen to read questions I wrote and provide answers I wrote every day. Why do I do that? I'm too cowardly to do this by myself. I'm too undisciplined and I need help. And you know what? It's okay. We all need help. So you told me about this once, actually, when we went for a walk when you were living out in Rancho Santa Fe. And that's what struck me was that you're already inherently extremely disciplined. You know, at the beginning of the podcast, you said, let's go. You know, it's like, we're on time. Let's go. You know, so that's you. It's like, move things forward. Let's get things going. And that's you. So many people listening to this would think, oh, why can't he just ask himself these questions, right? Why does he need someone to hold them accountable? And it seems to me, if I remember correctly, that you do this sort of late in the day. So you've had your full clock. You've had the full opportunity to accomplish what you wanted to. And then the same person calls you every day and says, how'd you do? Is that kind of how it works for you? Well, and you know, let me give you an analogy. Two things. One is when you introduced me, you left out a key quality that I have. I'm surprised you left it out. <laughs> I have an amazing gift of having the ability to screw something up every day. You know, I, you left that out there in my I introduction, you know, screw-up factor. Well, you know, I seem like I screw something up every day. Now, you know, have you ever impressed yourself, Mark, with your ability on a seemingly daily basis to screw something up? So tell me about this conversation. How long does it last? And what are the questions? Three or four minutes. And oh, there's six questions I recommend for everyone. And they all begin with the phrase, did I do my best to? Did I do my best to? Now, if any of your listeners would like to get all of my questions, send me an email, Marshall with two L's at MarshallGoldsmith.com. I'll send them an article about this process and my own questions. My questions aren't intended to be yours. Everybody should write their own questions. Let me give you my first six questions. They all began with the phrase, did I do my best to? Now, I learned this from my daughter, Kelly. Kelly, you may have seen her before. She was on the TV show Survivor Africa. She went to Duke. She 
graduated from Duke, was on this TV show. And then she worked in L.A. for a couple of years with Mark Burnett. Then she went to Yale. She has two two master's degrees and a PhD from Yale. And now she's at Vanderbilt, where she's a teacher in the business school, where she got to be the she was a professor of the year last year. So, you know, daddy's very proud. Congratulations. Underachiever. Yeah, underachiever. So daddy is uh, (laughs) I'm talking to Kelly. Kelly and I are reviewing this daily question idea. And we also talked about employee engagement. And she said, you know, she said, daddy, everything on employee engagement is what we call a passive question. Do you have clear goals? Do you have meaningful work? Do you have a friend at work? She said, there's nothing wrong with passive questions. Here's the only issue. When you ask someone a passive question, they give you a negative response. They blame the environment. So, for example, you have clear goals. No, well, why not? Well, they're confused. Do you have meaningful work? No, they make me do trivia. Do you have a best friend at work? No, they're a bunch of jerks. Whose fault is it? Them. Kelly taught me, ask yourself active questions to begin with the phrase, did I do my best to? You know why? Because you can't blame someone else. So here are my first six questions, and they all begin with, did I do my best to? Number one, did I do my best to set clear goals? Rather than saying, did someone else set goals for me today, did I do my best today to set clear goals? And again, you might think all these people that I work with every weekend would all get perfect scores since they're all high achievers. Nope. Some days we wake up, we get on the Internet, we make a phone call. Eight hours later, 10 hours later, the day's over. You wonder what happened. I guess my clear goal was just respond to crap today because that seems to be all it did. Number two is, did I do my best to make progress toward achieving my goals? Number three, did I do my best to find meaning? Number four, I'll talk about, did I do my best to be happy? It doesn't say you were happy. Did I do my best to be happy today? Now, in my book, Triggers, I talk about three of the people who are among the smartest people I've ever worked with and obviously have the rights to use their names. One is my friend, Dr. Jim Kim. I just talked to him on the phone yesterday. Jim Kim, simultaneous MD and PhD with honors from Harvard in anthropology in five years. Put this in context, a normal human has a PhD in anthropology from Harvard, takes eight years. He got one in five years and got a medical degree at the same time. And he was also then president of Dartmouth and he was uh, president of the World Bank. So pretty much high achiever. Dr. Raj Shaw is head of the Rockefeller Foundation. I talked to him yesterday and also was head of the United States Agency for International Development when he was 37 years old. And Dr. John Noseworthy is the CEO of the Mayo Clinic. So, you know, all three of these fellows reasonably bright. So all three ask a question on a one to 10 scale on the average day. How would you rank yourself on this question? Did I do my best to be happy today? And all three had the same answer. It never dawned on me to try to be happy. It never dawned on me to try to be happy. Now, they're all medical doctors. So I said, you know, did it dawn on you that you're going to die? Did they cover that in medical school area? <laughs> death? Was that on the agenda there? I said, yeah, yeah, they covered that death. I said, do you think this is a silly question or a trivial question? They said, no. It's a very important question I forgot to ask because I was too busy achieving things. Well, my favorite line in my book, Triggers, is this. Even the greatest sharpshooter can miss a very big target. Hmm. These are three of the most brilliant people I've ever met. They forgot to try to be happy. 
Wow. Well, I want to talk about triggers in a second, but I first I want to compliment your daughter because I'm very familiar. I do a lot of work with Gallup. I've written a lot of articles and I've had Jim Harder on my podcast several times. And, you know, it's a very powerful insight that she had, which is that the outcome of any negative feedback is a deflection. And that's her insight. And I think that's really true because we've all had shitty jobs. And like I had one where I remember just like, you know, I had tears in my eyes. This is not what I want to be doing for these people. But in that moment, that's what I was doing. And you have to say to yourself, what can I do? And, you know, what can I do to make myself happy? What can I do to make myself engage? What can I do to get the best out of this? And so um, congratulations. It's I, I'm very impressed with that. And I think our audience will be, too. So we're talking about human foibles in some respects here. This is sort of an early theme of this conversation. And you mentioned triggers. And, you know, one of the things that just, like, got me immediately was that, in your career, like up until the point that you wrote this book through the process of your research, you've asked 80,000 professionals to rate their performance. And 70% of them believe that they're in the top 10% of their peer group. And 98.5% of them believe that they're in the top half. So obviously unachievable. So tell us about this human inclination to overestimate ourselves and then maybe tell us some of the remedies. Well, in my book, What Got You Here Won't Get You There, I talk about we have this delusion. I behave this way. I am successful. Therefore, I must be successful because I behave this way. Wrong. Everyone I work with behaves the way they behave, and they're all ridiculously successful because they do many things right. And in spite of doing a lot of things that are stupid. And that's how I make a living. And, you know, that, that exercise you talk about is hilarious. I work with one group of medical doctors. And I said, okay, how many think you're in the top two, five, 10, 20? And then I got done. I looked at the group and I said, you know, my research has proven, conclusively proven, that half of all medical doctors have graduated in the bottom half of their medical school class. <laughs> two of them told me that was impossible. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Two of them have told me that's impossible. <laughs> and of course, the head of the doctors was looking there. He's shaking his head going, oh, my God. Finally, one guy wouldn't shut up. He just had to look at him and say, please shut up. You're embarrassing. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> You're embarrassing all of us. The whole here. industry of the doctors. Exactly. Yeah. yeah just yeah, be quiet. You're embarrassing <laughs> all of us. Here. So humility, is that your recommendation? Start there. Yeah, you need to have the humility to admit you can get better and, you know, we can all get better. I mean, in his book, Dave Chang, who's, you know, was one of the most successful restaurant guys in the world, talks about me giving him feedback. And, you know, for him, it was very humbling. You know, he has this image of who he is. And then he's got to look in the mirror and say, wait a minute, everybody else not seeing what I see. Is that a painful part of your job? In other words, because you are incisive. I know that about you. So Not really. You got to realize, look, I, I'm working with mega successful people here. Yeah, but they have egos too, right? Uh-oh, uh-oh, uh-oh. Did you say, but they have egos? Oh, they did. I broke the rule. Sorry. But, but, sorry. But $20. Sorry. $20. Go ahead, explain. Chide me first and then explain why I've blown it here, Marshall. So in my book, what got you here won't get you there. 
I say when people give you ideas, you treat them as a gift and you never get a sentence with three words, no, but, or however. Mm-hmm. And, but tends to say, yeah, forget what you just said. I'm, <laughs> gonna, I'm sorry. Yeah, and, yeah, and, and no means you're wrong. And so one of my clients is, I, I said, I'm going to find you $20, your favorite charity here for doing that. Every time from now on in, that's free. Will you ever do it again? $20. I said, but Marshall, 20, no, 40. No, no, no. sixty. <laughs> He lost $420 in an hour. At the end of an hour and a half, he said, thank you. I had no idea. How much money have I charity playing this little game? Over a billion dollars. So, Mark, what's your favorite charity? Cancer Society. You owe them $20. All right. Deal. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to do my best not to get it up to $420. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Now, start the sentence over, but don't say but. There's ego involved with some of the people that you're working with, I would have to imagine. Big, usually big egos, right? So does that interfere with their willingness or does it create more pain? Are they more resistant to you being incisive and saying to someone directly, you're arrogant, you're impatient, you're melodramatic, whatever the derailer is? Do you get people immediately saying, oh, thank you for pointing that out to me, Marshall, or do you get pushback? Yeah, sometimes they push back. Then they start losing $20, $40. Once they lose enough money, they quit. You might say, wait a minute, these are rich people. Rich people would not mind losing small amounts of money. You see, that would be wrong. Rich people don't like to lose any money. Yeah. <laughs> this works great. And the other thing is, yeah, do I feel sorry for my clients? No. I went to Africa in 1984 and watched a lot of people starve to death. Mm. I really, I feel sorry for them. My clients are mega successful people who live in big homes and have nice lives. They're all adults. And do I feel sorry for them? Not at all. These are mega successful people. They're good people. You know, they're not going to starve to death whether they hear from me or not. And by the way, if they don't want to get the feedback, I just refuse to work with them. They have an attitude problem. I just don't work with them. So option A, get with the plan, or option B, I just don't work with I don't judge them. I just don't work with them. I'm not going to waste my time. I actually woke up this morning, and the first thought that went through my mind was, I need to ask Marshall, in your career, I think I already know the answer, but I'd love to know what, what degree. Is everybody coachable? Definitely not. You see, my system of coaching is I don't get paid if my clients don't get better. Better is not judged by me or them. It's judged around them. And, you know, what I've learned is the client I spent the most amount of time with didn't improve at all. They didn't get paid. Client I spent the least amount of time with improved more than anyone I've ever coached. 200 people got better and I did get paid. So I go talk to him. His name is Alan Mullally. He was the CEO of the year in the United States. And he turned Ford around. The stock was at a dollar. It went to $18.40 when he was the CEO. And he had a 97% approval rating from every employee in a union company, UAW. They love this guy. Probably the best leader in the world in the last 20 years. Mm-hmm. So I go talk to my friend, Alan. I talk to him on the phone all the time. So he's a good friend. So I go talk to my friend, Alan. I said, Alan, of all the people I ever coached, you improved the most. I spent the least amount of time with you. Hmm. I said, Alan, I made a chart here. On one dimension, it's called time spent with the coach, Marshall Goldsmith. And the other dimension called improvement at I hate to say there seems to be a negative correlation between spending time with me and getting better. And I said, you know, Alan, the way this chart looks, had you never met me, you'd really been good. (laughs) (laughs) So I asked Alan, what should I learn about coaching from you? He taught me two lessons. He said, lesson number one, your biggest challenge as a coach is called customer selection. You pick the right customers, you win. You pick the wrong customer, you lose. 
They said, too, don't make coaching about yourself and your own ego and how smart you think you are. Make it about the great people you work with and how hard they work and how proud you are of them. And then he said, I don't design the cars. I don't build the cars. I don't sell the cars. I have to have great people. And he said, every day I drive to work and I tell myself, leadership's not about me. Leadership's about them. Well, you know what I learned about coaching? It's not about me. It's about them. Yeah, I got ranked number one coach in the world forever. Why? Well, nobody's seen me coach anybody. They don't know I'm a good coach. They know I've got great customers. They know I've got great customers who got better. So it's kind of like being a basketball coach. One coach seems to win all the time. Well, the fact he's coaching the all-star team might help. Yeah, well, I might consider a great coach. If you had my clients, anybody would be a good coach. These people are fantastic people. So, you know, I'm not making them look good. They're making me look good. Well, I'm not going to use any of the bad words here. I'm just going to say I'm not really agreeing with you at this moment. But let me ask you a question. Uh, 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 oh, no, really? Okay, the Heart Association gets it. This was not intended to be difficult for me. I'm, I was. I don't think I've ever really struggled <laughs> to be. Oh, no, no. Wait a minute. Oh, time out. Time out. cost me money for crying time out loud. Time out. Time out, time out. <laughs> now, you're, now you're doing exactly what all my clients do. No, I'm owning it. Oh, I'm ashamed of myself. Stop. You just said, oh, no, I'm owning it. It's now 60 bucks. Oh. <laughs> We're going to have to end this conversation here. <laughs> my audience, I'm sorry. You're, you're not going to get any more out of Marshall today. Too By the way, what you're doing is exactly what my clients do. They complain about losing 20 bucks. One guy going 20, 40, 60, he goes, this is expensive. I said, look, you made $35 million last year. Now, this is $20 to a little homeless kid. Shut up. Exactly. Well, yeah. How much money do you give to charity? You give more money than that probably every week. Marshall, what do you do if you didn't choose your customer right? If you didn't choose the right customer? Or I have to imagine some point during your career that you didn't choose you had somebody that you used to work with, a client, a company that said, Bill over here is really struggling and we need you to help save him. And Bill isn't necessarily on, on board. What do you do there? It's very simple. Goodbye, Bill. You tell the client that or you, you tell Bill that? I tell Bill goodbye and I tell the client I'm not going to work with Bill. Without ever having a conversation or do you have one meeting of the mind? Let me give you an example. Okay, thanks. Years ago, GE wanted me to coach a division president. I said, I will work with him if he does all this stuff. They called back. Well, he wants to work with you. He just doesn't want to do all that stuff. I said, look, I only get paid for results. I'm not worried with this guy. Wasting my time. They call back again. Look, we'll pay you anyway. We'll just give you the money. And if he doesn't get better, we won't blame you. I said, wrong. I'm not going to do this. They said, well, you can't tell us that we're your customer. I said, no, you're not. The customer someone sends me money and I'm not taking the money. So therefore, you are not my customer. By the way, in the United States, we have this anti-slavery rule and this freedom of speech rule. So you know what? I can say pretty much whatever I wanted to and I don't have to work for you. So goodbye. This went right back up when he was CEO to Jack Welch. You know what Jack Welch said? What did Marshall Goldsmith ask this guy to do? Get feedback. Well, he didn't want to do it. Apologize for his mistakes. He didn't want to do it. Follow up and measure he got better. He didn't want to do it. You know what you know what Jack Wells said? Out I guess. fired. Yeah, let him go. 
right? Out, out, out. I was going to give this guy a chance, but, you know, he doesn't want to admit he has a problem. He doesn't want to get feedback. He doesn't want to follow up. Let's just skip ahead. Why waste a year? No, I think this is brilliant because it goes back to what you just said about, you know, the, the longer the investment, the lower the return, right? That's your experience. If you don't have people meeting you where you need them to meet them, then it's talking to a stone. So I just applaud your directness. I applaud your knowledge that says, Act on your convictions and don't waste any time. I'm totally impressed with that in this moment. I just think that is such a powerful example for everybody to listen to. And I want to ask you, in the course of your career, you know, were there common denominators besides the kind of arrogance, you know, dismissiveness, perception that I don't need to improve? Besides that, what are two or three behaviors that tend to derail the most leadership careers in your experience? Well, it's very difficult to make the transition from an achiever to a leader. It's very difficult. It's easy in theory. It's hard in practice. Why? One of my clients said the achiever, it's all about me and the leader, it's all about them. Mm -hmm. Most of the people I work with are very smart people. I wrote an article about this called Challenges for the Super Smart. These people in their lives have taken test after test after test after test after test. They've literally taken hundreds or thousands of tests. Every one of these tests, they had one goal, prove how smart they were over and over and over again. Prove them smart, prove them smart, prove them smart, prove them smart. And every time they did that, somebody rewarded them. And if they didn't, which is almost never, they would get punished. It is very difficult to stop doing this after thousands and thousands and thousands Mm. of times. It's very easy in theory to stop doing this in practice. It is incredibly difficult not to prove how smart we are, not to win every argument, not to prove how right we are. Why? We have been conditioned to do this since we were children. And it's very, very hard to stop. Does that give you a special insight on leadership selection? So we have, I think, a pretty proven history of hiring the brainiest people for leadership roles. Smarter, the better. More analytical, the better. And yet, if you look at the engagement, job satisfaction, the trends seem to suggest that we're really not getting much better over at least the last 15 years. That tends to imply that our practices, at least the things that we do as leaders, isn't necessarily as effective as it could be. And so I'm wondering if you, in your coaching, have looked to see that there's a quality that we need to be looking for or qualities that need to be there, like almost binary. Like if you don't have them, you probably shouldn't hire this person to be a leader. Do you have that experience? Well, two issues. One, I'm going to deal with your question about smartness. The next thing I'm going to say is not based on research, it's just based on experience. So I like to sort out what's based on real research with numbers and what's based on experience. My coaching process is backed by research from thousands of people. This is more of a theory, but I think it's true. I think there is some correlation between being a good leader and intelligence, but only to a certain point. And when you get beyond that point, I begin to question, maybe you don't become less effective as a leader. You become, I don't become more effective. You actually become less effective Mm -hmm. because you're too different than the people you coach. When I work with my friend, Alan, who was CEO of the year in the United States, I also coached the guy who was ranked the worst CEO of the year in the United States. And that person, by the way, had probably an IQ of 180. Mm-hmm. And he was not a bad guy. He's just a terrible CEO. He'd get in a meeting and somebody would make a presentation. He'd go, well, don't you see how this relates to that? 
guy goes, no, I never thought of that. He said, well, you don't, you didn't think of it. Can you see it now? Yeah. Well, how about you? Did you see it? No. What's wrong with you people? Am I the only one in the room that sees it? Well, I had to tell him, you're the only one in the room that has an IQ of 180. Mm-hmm. This was a retail business. These people are not rocket scientists you're managing here. And yeah, you're the freak, not them. You're the freak, not them. Well, he was so different than them, he couldn't relate to them. So I think when you're way off the chart on anything, it makes you hard to relate to normal people. Now, if he was leading like a McKinsey, it's not so bad because they're all smart or Goldman Sachs. But, you know, he wasn't. Now, in those organizations, you got to be pretty high up the IQ curve. If you're not, you're just going to be dismissed. On the other hand, when you're managing people, if the differential between your IQ and that IQ of the people you're managing is too large, I think you can actually start going backwards. Hmm. But pin down, obviously, you don't want to have somebody that's not relatable. And so a 180 IQ is going to skew you into a universe where no one else is. And you can almost predict the kinds of problems that he faced there. Yeah. In terms of hiring managers, like if you were advising a company and say, you know, through the course of all the people that I've been coaching, quality that keeps coming up, the quality that I keep seeing that helps them succeed in ways that you might not know is X. Well, number one, do they have the courage to consistently go out and try to get better and learn from people? And do they have the humility to admit they need to constantly improve? And do they have the discipline to do the work to get better? I mean, I'm not an expert on strategy or marketing. There are many elements of important selection. On the other hand, in terms of the people dimension, those three factors seem to me to be the most important for all the people I coach. If they have these qualities, they will get better. If they do not have these qualities, they probably will not get better. Fantastic. Another thing that's different from the past is, see, Peter Drucker said the leader of the past knew how to tell and the leader of the future knows how to ask. Why? In the past, the leader knew more than the followers. The leader was expected to be more knowledgeable. But today, if I'm coaching a CEO who knows more about marketing than the marketing person, more about finance than the finance person, more about HR than the HR person, this leader does not have a leadership problem. The leader has a selection problem. Mm -hmm. They have the wrong staff. You want your people to know more than you. And if they know more than you, you can't just tell them what to do and how to do it. You have to ask, you have to listen, you have to learn. Fantastic. Wonderful. So you once hosted a dinner. 17 coaching clients, and you ask them to promise not to do two specific things during the meal. Number one, don't interrupt the other person or another person. And number two, don't say anything judgmental. And spoiler alert for my audience, 16 of them failed (laughs) within minutes. So obviously, we don't have to look too far to see somebody failing (laughs) your tests. Tell us about what you were trying to teach here and why so many smart leaders so quickly broke their promise. Well, again, you know, I've even been asked to do a podcast with this one guy, a brilliant guy. And I think he even read my book and he did this no but however thing three times while we were talking. So, you know, it's, it's, (laughs) this stuff is hard. hard. It's not hard to understand. It's hard to do. These things are very deeply ingrained. You know, let me prove to you how smart I am. It's just very, very deeply ingrained. And the guy that didn't fail, he just put a little card in front of him and said, don't do this. And he could look at the card. And all through dinner, he looked at the card and he didn't do it. 
Well, guess what? That's what it took. That's why he didn't do it. And the others did. We grossly overestimate willpower. We grossly overestimate self-discipline. And why do I have somebody call me every day? I don't have the willpower to do this by myself. Twyla Tharp is the world's greatest choreographer and a spectacular dancer. She's had the same personal trainer for 27 years. Why? Do you think the trainers tell her anything new? No. The trainer just makes her do what she knows she needs to do. Well, she's smart enough to say, my name is Twyla Tharp. I'm too cowardly and undisciplined to do this by myself. I need help, and it's okay. That's why she has a trainer. That's why she looks beautiful at her age. Well, we all need help. One thing I'm very proud of in my book, Triggers, is 27 major CEOs endorse the book. Why am I proud of that? 30 years ago, no CEO would admit to having a coach. Mm-hmm. They would have been ashamed to have had a coach yeah. or embarrassed. Well, today, these are people stand up and say, look, you know, hey, my name is Uber Jolie. I turned around Best Buy. I did one of the best corporate turnaround jobs in history. And you know what? I still need help. I need help. It's okay. I was CEO of the year. I need help. I won the President Metro Medal of Freedom. I need help. I'm President of World Bank. I need help. I'm head of the Rockefeller Foundation. I need help. Head of the Olympic Committee. I need help. Who are we kidding? We all need help. That has to be one of the most powerful takeaways from this whole conversation, Marshall. We all need help. You know, I think you said it, that for whatever reason, our tradition has been that if you had a coach, you had a problem. You were trying to remedy something. You were in the doghouse and you better fix it. And it wasn't to advance you. It was to bring you back to ground zero. And we all need help. There's a humility in that, but there's a realism in it that I think will strike a lot of people. So thank you for that. Um, How many of the top 10 tennis players have a coach? Yeah, exactly. Right. They all do. Even the guy that won the U.S. Open this past week was out hitting balls in the dark in 48 degree weather in New York. And he had two of his coaches there at night when he was leading. I think he was one stroke behind, but he was set up to win this whole thing and was determined to win it. And what did he have? All of his coaches around him. And by the way, one of the things that made me think of you on Sunday and watching the U.S. Open, Marshall, was that this guy, Bryson DeChambeau, when they had a little extra time, usually these tournaments end, they say, "Okay, here's our winner, and then they sign off. It seemed like they had a little extra time. So what they did was they gave him the trophy, and then they gave him the microphone. And it was stunning to me, but what he thought to do in that moment wasn't to say, well, you know, I've really worked hard and, you know, this has been a dream of mine and I'm this and I'm that. Instead, you know what he did? He thanked his coaches personally and not just personally, Marshall. He thanked them specifically. I want to thank this one for doing this for me. And I want to thank this one who did this for me. And I think there's a sense of gratitude that we can't do it by ourselves, that made his winning this tournament even more joyful for me. That's a great example. Marshall, you believe that there are magical moves we can make in our relationships with other people. And apologizing is a magic move. Asking for help is a magic move. And feeling and displaying optimism happens to be a magic move. So tell us why you think taking these actions are so magical. And are there more, by the way? Well, Let's see, Mark, you have a wife, husband, or significant other. Yes, wife. Wife, okay, that's very good. Now, 
Mark, uh, do you believe that customer satisfaction is important? <laughs> yes. Should we ask our customers how we can do better? Yes. And should we listen to these good customers? Yes. And you've been asking your wife, what can Mark do to be a better husband? Yes. So that's very unusual because you know what the typical answer is? No. no. We've been married for over 30 years, so maybe there's some testament there. Uh, I, you need to ask that question. How can I be better? It's a great question at work. It's a great question at home. How can I be a better husband, a better father, a better son, a better daughter? If your parents are alive, call your parents up and say, what can I do to be a better son? So asking is a very positive thing. It's kind of the ultimate compliment you can give another person is what can I do to improve the relationship with you? And then, you know, apologizing. We all make mistakes. And what should we do to make a mistake? Apologize. And if we want to blame somebody, who's the best person in the world to blame for our mistake? Blame ourselves. I always tell leaders this. You want them to take responsibility? Let them watch you take a little responsibility. And, you know, in optimism, there's a lot of research on this that shows that, you know, if you're optimistic, you may not win. You improve your odds. I want to comment on that. I don't know where I learned it. Marshall, but what I learned was to actually do what you just described a long time ago, and not specifically with my wife, but with the people that were working for me. And so when it became time to do reviews, I would go out and meet with people managing remotely, but I would actually go out and be with them. And when I'd be done with the review, the very first thing I would say, or the very first thing as I was closing was, before we go... I'd like for you to tell me one thing that you think that I do really, really well. And of course, they would tell me I was the greatest manager they ever had and no one could ever replace me and on and on it went. And from there, I said, okay, well, now that you've told me one thing that I'm really good at, tell me one thing that I could do better. How could I be a better manager for you specifically, you personally? And, you know, I'm doing these in a series, so I'm doing them all in a high concentrated period of time. And I'm asking all the people that work for me. And so the next step of this was usually, oh, Mark, you know, you don't really have anything you need to improve. I, I already told you, you're really terrific and you're a great manager and I couldn't ask for any more. And I said, well, you've told me one thing that I'm really good at, so I'm giving you permission. I want you to tell me one thing that I'm not doing well. And man, did it hurt. It wasn't that they couldn't come up with them. They were didn't want to express them, but they all had them. And they were very different. Like one person just said to me, I don't see you enough. Like, I don't hear from you enough. I feel like you don't care about me. And it was very painful to hear. The reason I'm sharing this is because what I learned on the other side was that by committing to fix them, I elevated our relationships and created more trust, more enthusiasm, more joy, more success, because people thought, he's willing to do that for me. He's willing to come out here more often because that's the one thing that I wanted. So what you just described is really, really powerful. Yep. And the key is doing it. You once told me that you learned something from every person you've ever coached. And I love that your ability to help new clients has been cumulatively enhanced by all the clients who've preceded them, right? This is what's made you so great. And in thinking about this, there's also this element of the giver becomes the receiver going on here. And I thought I'd ask you about that. Yeah, I think I've learned far more from my coaching clients than they've ever learned from me. And partly that's a function of having great clients. 
I mean, these are brilliant people mm-hmm. and they're dedicated people and they're, you know, amazing people. So I'm sure I've learned far more from them than they have from me. And I tell them that. And my whole new coaching philosophy came from Alan Mulally, who I was his coach. You know, he taught me all these things. And, you know, Uber Jolie has taught me so much. And Jim Kim and Francis Hesselbein and all these great people I've coached. So I feel very blessed just to be around such people. I also love that, you know, you mentioned at the beginning that you're in your early 70s and you're still open to changing. You're still embracing the idea that what got me there will get me where I want to go for all intents and purposes, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm working on a couple of new projects. One is the 100 Coach Project, which is amazing. And I've got another new idea. I was talking to a woman who's in the 100 Coaches named Nankande. And Nankande lives in Zambia, and she wants to use my material for training leaders in Africa. So I said to her, well, go ahead. You know, I'm happy to have you use it. But she said, well, you know, changing the words and the context. I came up with an idea. I said, look, Nankande, change it any way you want to. Put your name on it. I don't care. If it helps people, just use it. And I came up with this idea, which is called Knowledge Philanthropy. And I have a new project I'm working on about knowledge philanthropy. It's about giving back. And the way it works is I call it reverse franchising. See, in a franchise, you have this intellectual property, and then other people can use it if they pay you money, but they have to use it exactly like you told them. And if they use it incorrectly, you take it back. And then then if they don't give you money, you sue them. Mine is the opposite. I have this intellectual property, and I give it away. And people do use it any way they want to. They change it any way they want to, put their name on it when they want to. And uh, they don't have to send me any money. They want to send money. They can donate it to charity. And I just give it all away. It's been an amazing project to get people motivated and enthusiastic. And, you know, I learned it basically. I'm a Buddhist from Buddha. Buddhists that only do what I teach or what works for you. And I use Buddhist material all the time in my teaching. Well, you know, last time I checked, I didn't send Buddha any commission checks. (laughs) And he never sued me. Yeah. So, you know. I did happen to see you launch this just recently, and you have a YouTube video where you're in your new home and you're explaining this idea of knowledge philanthropy and giving in your language. I think you said you're giving away everything that you know. So going back to the beginning of the conversation, was this a COVID work from home off the airplane inspiration? Well, it's basically the inspiration from talking to Nankandi and realizing She's so much more enthusiastic with her name on it than my name. And what do I care? I'm not going to do this anyway. It doesn't hurt me. I don't have time to develop a training program for young high potential leaders in Africa, right? Number one, I have less credibility. And two, I have no time. If she can do it, she's taking what I know and helping others. And it doesn't hurt me at all. So why not? So that led me to this thought, and I love the idea. I'll tell you, you know who Martin Lindstrom is? Martin Lindstrom is one of the world's experts on branding. He's in the Thinker's 50, and I talked to Martin yesterday. He's going to do the same thing. He's sold more books than I have. I've sold two and a half million books. He's sold 5.9 million books. He's going to give all of his material away and let people use it however they want. I, I love this idea. I think it's incredibly generous and and as we've been talking, it actually inherently expands your reach anyway. She's taking a message that you probably would never have had. 
into where she specifically works in Africa. And so it just magnifies your work and through your own generosity. So it goes back to what we were talking about. The giver gets more in return. You mentioned Buddhism. I, I want to explore that very quickly. The Dalai Lama calls the human qualities of goodness and kindness and compassion and caring basic spirituality. And so I wanted to ask you, based on your experience in coaching thousands of leaders, how have you found those qualities, specific basic spirituality, influence success in life? Well, I'm not a religious Buddhist. I'm a philosophical Buddhist. So for me, Buddhism is not a religion or metaphysical. It's a way of life. Mm -hmm. And a lot of my teaching is Buddhist. Buddha basically said, feed forward, I teach all the time, which is a Buddhist concept. You ask for ideas, you listen, you thank people, you do what you can do, and if you don't want to do it, you don't do it. That came from Buddha, who said, look, I give ideas, you know, do what works for you. If it works for you, you do it. If it doesn't work for you, don't do it. It's okay. Don't waste your time talking about why it doesn't work for you. If you don't want to do it, you're not going to do it anyway. Well, that kind of really tailored a lot of my coaching and feed forward. And also, one of the big concepts of Buddhism is accept what is. Just learning like this crisis, you got to accept what's there. People just get so bummed out because I wish it were. Well, you know, you don't live in I wish it were land. You live in an is land. And you've got to deal with what's there. And so Buddhism is a lot of just common sense philosophy of life, which to me is very, very productive and positive and the other thing about Buddhism is it uh, focuses a lot on happiness and peace and finding happiness and peace now, not this infinite race for next week or next month or next year. You know, be happy now. So those qualities, goodness, kindness, caring, compassion, are they differentiators in your mind? Yeah. By the way, let's say you do that and you make more money. Great. Let's say you do that and you don't make more money. It's great anyway. If you have to ask yourself, should I do these things to make more money? I shouldn't be talking to you. Well, I'm not so sure it's about making more money. There's an inclination to not necessarily be kind, compassionate, caring in leadership, in organizations. Well, now, let me stop. You say there's an inclination, and you mentioned employee engagement surveys, a couple of reflections. One is leaders today are probably nicer than they've ever been in history by far. Mm -hmm. People ask me this question, are leaders more bullies today than ever? No, they're less bullies today than ever. We used to have sweatshops. We used to have kings. We used to have all kinds of terrible things, right? <laughs> Yeah. People used to swear at each other on a daily basis, put people down, fire people at will. That was life. Well, you might say, well, why do people complain more today? Because today they're more sensitive. Let me give you an example. I'm coaching a guy that's head of a hospital. In the old days, medical doctors used to yell and scream at interns, put them down, call them names, swear at them constantly. That's part of life. They, can, they don't do that anymore. They're much nicer to the interns. They treat them with respect. Do you think the number of complaints has gone? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to guess the answer. Mm -hmm. Number of complaints has gone up. Why? Because the interns are much more sensitive to this stuff than they were. Hell, in the old days, if they made a complaint, they knew they're going to get fired. There weren't any complaints. So can I interpret from that that no matter what improvements we make, you're always going to have people complaining or wanting more? And so is engagement an unmovable needle? 
Well, I mean, I don't want to get into great detail on this, but if you look at engagement as a concept, you really have to be sensitive about how you deal with it. For example, I think the country in the world that has the highest level of employee engagement is the Philippines. Now, what does that prove? I mean, I, I love people from the Philippines. They're incredibly nice and friendly people, but they're hardly the most productive country in the world. Yet they have high employee engagement scores. You know why? They're nice people. They give everyone high scores when they fill out forms. Mm-hmm. You know what that proves? Nothing. Exactly. Yeah. They're nice people. They give high scores when they fill out forms. Yeah, that didn't prove anything. And, you know, if you look at a place like McKinsey and Company, people are incredibly critical. It doesn't mean it's a bad organization. It means they're incredibly smart, analytical people who evaluate each other. Well, you know, you can't sit there and say, gee, their engagement scores are a little lower. Therefore, they're bad people. Not really. So would you move that metric away or do you tend to? I think think the metric is a good metric to use at the micro level, but to compare it across countries and these global comparison of 20 years ago and stuff is pointless in my mind because the world today is so different than 20 years ago that to sit there and say, let's compare engagement scores today with 20 years ago means, means almost nothing. So Marshall, I'd like to take a quick break from our discussion and transition into a podcast tradition we call the Heartbeat Round to give us a little more personal insight into the biggest influences in your life. I'm going to ask you a few more personal questions, but these require a quick, instinctive, and brief answer. So answer them in a heartbeat. You ready to play? Sure. Okay. Quality you admire most in other people? Humility. You've flown over 11 million miles in your career. What country would you most like to see again? I'd like to go back to Thailand. The Buddha's greatest teaching. Be happy now. One book you believe everyone listening in should read. Old Path, White Clouds by Thich Nhat Tung. A coach in college or professional athletics that you greatly respect. I respect my coach, Frances Hesselbein. She wasn't in college, but she was a college teacher to me. A cultural value every organization should have. Listen to people. Your synonym for the word heart. Love. One lesson you wish you'd learned earlier in life. Make peace with what is. Something you think everyone should do at least once in their life. Take a chance. Greatest coaching advice you've ever received personally. Don't be self-righteous. Be happy now. One big thing left for you to do on your bucket list. Create a movement where everyone likes me to give away everything they have to as many people as they can. Skill improvement you're working on right now. Accepting what is. How do you spend your time on flights? I haven't been on one for a while. I know. I know. <laughs> I've always been curious about this. You spend so much time. What do you do? Think. The whole time? It just depends. No reading? No movies? Sometimes I read. And besides love, what does the world need more of? Compassion. These are great. Really, really wonderful. Thank you, Marshall. I want to return to our conversation, but these were really great. So thank you. Thank you. Marshall, if I'm like any of the people listening in, I want to just express that I'm unhappy that this is coming to an end. Let's just say that. I could talk to you for hours and your wisdom and insight has just been so wonderful so far here. And I I really have this tradition on the podcast where I turn over the stage to my guest and that would be you. And so as we close things out, any final thoughts, any... Anything you care to inspire us with before we close it out? Yeah, I'll give everyone my best coaching advice. Take a breath. Take a deeper breath. 
Imagine you're 95 years old and you're just getting ready to die. Right before you take that last breath, you're given a beautiful gift. The ability to go back in time and talk to the person that's listening to me right now. The ability to help that person be a better leader, much more important, the ability to help that person have a better life. What advice would that wise 95-year-old you, who knows what mattered in life and what didn't and what was important and what wasn't, what advice would that old person have for the you that's listening to me right now? Well, whatever you're thinking now, do that. In terms of a performance appraisal, that's the only one that matters. That old person says you did the right thing, you did the right thing. That old person says you made a mistake, you made a mistake. You don't have to impress anyone else. Some of my friends interviewed old folks who were dying to get to ask this question. What advice would you have? On the personal side, three themes. Theme number one, three words. Be happy now. Not next week, not next month, not next year. Be happy now. The great Western disease, I got so busy chasing what I didn't have, I couldn't see what I did have. And now that I'm old, I realize I had everything. Mm-hmm. I just didn't appreciate it. So be happy now. Number two, back to your question about the way you treat people is, uh, you know, friends and family. Don't get so wrapped up on climbing the corporate ladder. You forget the people you love, your friends, your family. And then number three, on the personal side, if you have a dream, go for it. Because you don't go for it when you're 35. You may not when you're 75. And business advice is much different. Number one, life is short. Have fun. If you don't enjoy what you're doing, try to find something else to do as quick as you can. And number two is another question you ask is people. Do whatever you can do to help people. And back to your question about the way you treat people. The reason you want to do a great job of helping other people has nothing to do with work or money or getting ahead. The reason you want to do a great job of helping other people is very simple. The 95-year-old you was going to be proud of you because you did, and the 95-year-old you will be disappointed if you do not. And if you do not believe this is true, interview any CEO who has retired. I've interviewed very many and ask them a question. Please tell me, what are you proud of? What are you proud of? All they talked about is the people they've helped. Mm. None of them talked about their offices or how much money they made. All they talked about is the people they helped. And the final advice also saying, go for it. World's changing. Your industry's changing. Do what you think is right. You may not win. At least try. Old people, we never regret the risk we take and fail. We always regret the risk we fail to take. So finally, my pleasure to work with you. It was great to talk with you again. And I hope my... My little time has been good for your users. As I've grown older, my level of aspiration in life is going down and down and down. My level of impact is going up and up and up. Mm-hmm. I quit worrying about what I'm not going to change. So my goal on our little podcast is simple. I hope some of the listeners to this podcast have a little better life and maybe help some of the people around them have a little better life. And if that happens, you know what? This is a wonderful use of my time. You know what, Marshall, this is one of the most joyful experiences I've ever had in one of these interviews, and even though it's the most costliest, I have to write a check to the Cancer Society when we're done here. But I want you to know that this was an inspired conversation, and I'm extremely grateful. And so on behalf of my entire audience, namaste. Thank you so very much. Thank you so much for inviting me. Best to you, Marshall. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Before we go, I want to especially thank my producer, Eric Oz, for his wizardry in navigating some technical challenges that we had in making this episode happen. And I also hope you'll keep me in mind as a virtual keynote speaker for your team's next meeting. I would be honored to help you and your team successfully navigate these challenging times. 
And please keep on introducing our podcast to your friends and colleagues. Get the word out, please. And as always, I leave you with my constant reminder, when you lead from the heart, your people will follow. This is Mark C. Crowley thanking you for listening and signing off for now. Thank you.